America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And yes, it is a great day, despite the fact that this great nation continues to feel bitterly, painfully divided over debates about the war. Is it a moral war or a brutal, horrible, unjustified war? Does the war involve too many American troops and too much force or not enough American troops and not enough force? Is the war part of the desire for American imperialism or is it an absolutely essential struggle to try to protect the cause of freedom? I'm talking now, of course, about all of the debates that are roiling this country concerning not the war in Iraq, but concerning the war that continues to preoccupy the American imagination, the war in Vietnam. It's a very strange thing that at times, even in the midst of a bitter presidential campaign, rather than focusing on what this United States does next regarding our policy in the Middle East, our struggle against murderous terrorists who want to destroy us all, rather than discussing what we do concerning that, we have been totally preoccupied with debates, with arguments about who did what to whom during the Vietnam era more than 30 years ago. Now, this is very, very strange, even for those of us who are old enough to remember the Vietnam War, but imagine the confusion of all of those Americans, and there are now many, many of them, about a third of the country, who are too young to remember anything at all about the Vietnam era. What does it all mean? Well, one of the things it means is that the United States has been poisoned by three absolutely despicable, irresponsible, and potentially deadly lies about the Vietnam War. And in order for us to try to focus realistically on what we face right now and on the lessons that we should have learned, should be learning from the past, I'm going to devote this very special broadcast to trying to blow away, to obliterate, to correct with the clear light of the truth, the three big lies about Vietnam. Those lies are, number one, that the Vietnam War was an unconstitutional conflict that reflected a brutal drive for U.S. imperialism, a desire to dominate the whole world. Lie number two, that the U.S. military lost the war in Vietnam and in the process, committed horrendous atrocities, particularly against Vietnamese civilians. And lie number three, that the anti-war protesters were the real heroes of the Vietnam era, and they eventually succeeded in bringing peace to Vietnam and to the United States of America. Now, each of these three statements is a lie. And I'm going to demonstrate to you exactly how those lies work and why they're so destructive to any real understanding of what the United States did in Vietnam and did during the Cold War and what the United States must do and face for our present and for our future. Now, first of all, this whole idea of the Vietnam War still being with us. I mean, one of the Vietnam protesters who played an enormously controversial role back 30 and 35 years ago, was a guy named Kerry. Remember him? John Forbes Kerry. Spent four months and three days in country, in Vietnam, as commander of a swift boat, 
and then came home and protested the war in bitter terms. Now, many people have heard the things that he said about his fellow combat veterans. And yes, he was a combat veteran. Of course he was. And yes, he did face enemy fire. But he came back home, talked about atrocities, and made a commitment that in a way is almost prophetic about the sense in which the Vietnam War continues to haunt all of our debates about foreign policy, all of our debates about America and our military. On the same day that he and his fellow protesters threw medals, or John Kerry would insist not medals, but ribbons, which were just the signification of medals, threw these honors over the fence toward the White House in protest against the Vietnam War. On that same day, the future senator, John Kerry, had this to say. This is not the struggle of one day, or one month, or one year, or of one war. It's a struggle and an effort and a sacrifice and a contribution which we make for the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives? Maybe that determination, that insistence that his struggle as an anti-war protester was not about one war, that it was a struggle that lasted for the rest of his life, of our lives, explains the strange feeling of Groundhog Day that a lot of people have concerning some of these issues with Vietnam. You remember Groundhog Day, the uh, wonderful movie with Bill Murray, where he is fated to wake up every morning and to live the same day over and over and over again. For some of us who remember the Vietnam era, some of these debates, some of these arguments feel a bit like that. And isn't it ironic that President Bush's father, George Herbert Walker Bush, who led America to its stunning triumph in the first Gulf War, which involved just six weeks of fighting, just four days of ground warfare, led to the liberation of Kuwait with the killing, wounding, or capturing of more than 100,000 Iraqi troops at a cost of only about 300 American lives. After that stunning victory... President Bush said in a burst of pride, by God, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. I wonder what he's thinking right now with the Vietnam syndrome back upon us. And perhaps the most important, the most crucial of all of the lies to rebut about the Vietnam syndrome and this sense of reliving those same old tired debates again and again is the lie that you've heard so many times that America is an imperialist power, and the Vietnam War proves it, that it was an unconstitutional war that was actually based on a desire for American dominance. Now, the best way to get to the bottom of that first of the three big Vietnam lies is to actually make clear that the Vietnam War wasn't a separate war. Talking about the Vietnam War as a separate war is like talking about Gettysburg like a separate battle as if Gettysburg and Antietam and the Battle of Cold Harbor were all separate wars, somehow, rather than just battles in one larger struggle. Well, Vietnam was just one battle in a much larger struggle. It was a struggle that ranged between 1946 and 1989. It has been called by some people, like Norman Podhoretz, World War III, and in many ways it was World War III. It's also been called the Cold War. Now, the Cold War was a war that pitted the forces of Soviet and international communism against the United States, initially 
the United States was the only country with enough power to try to resist the advances of Stalinism and communism. But eventually, of course, we were joined by our European allies after they were stabilized and by other free countries on Earth. But people today look back on this war as if it weren't serious. But for goodness sake, try to put yourself in the position of President Truman after World War II. This unbelievable cataclysm with so much carnage and so many deaths all around the world. And then immediately after World War II, after ridding the world of the danger of Nazism and ridding the world of the danger of Hitlerism, solving Hitlerism the only way you definitively solve evil, which is through destroying it. After that, all of a sudden you face a brand new evil. And it's the evil of international communism. It's an evil that very conservatively has been estimated by scholars who compiled what's called Communism's Black Book to have claimed more than a 100 million victims, more than Nazism, during the 20th century. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, Three Big Lies About the Vietnam War. Immediately after World War II, after ridding the world of the danger of Nazism, and ridding the world of the danger of Hitlerism, solving Hitlerism the only way you definitively solve evil, which is through destroying it. After that, all of a sudden you face a brand new evil. And it's the evil of international communism. It's an evil that very conservatively has been estimated by scholars who compiled what's called Communism's Black Book to have claimed more than a 100 million victims, more than Nazism, during the 20th century. And many of those victims, most of those victims, actually met their graves, entered their graves after World War II. I mean, the carnage is staggering, because after World War II, not only did the Soviet Union impose its iron heel on all of Eastern Europe, running down from Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania all the way down. They tried in a very bloody civil war to take over Greece. They were resisted by the United States. They conquered and dominated Poland, East Germany. Germany was partitioned, and this is very, very important. People forget, because now we have a united Germany again, but it looked very permanent. Germany had been broken apart on armistice lines. One half of Germany, actually it was much more than one half, it was more like two-thirds of Germany was under Western control and became a free country and a democratic country. And about a third of the old country of Germany remained East Germany, totally dominated by the old Soviet Union and what was called a satellite power. And this was true throughout Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, Albania, which was under largely Chinese control. But all of these countries had been falling under the communist domination. And basically, the United States seemed to be powerless to try to stop the advances of communism. The most disastrous advance involved the fall of China with the Chinese Civil War in 1949, Mao Zedong taking over the most populous country on earth. What did that have to do with Vietnam and the lies about Vietnam? Everything. For more history shows, go to medvedhistorystore.com or become a medhead today at michaelmedved.com. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? You're listening to the three big lies about the Vietnam War. This is the Michael Medved Show. And some of those big lies 
On the Michael Medved Show, of course, were put forward and advanced by people like that guy Zimmerman from Hibbing, Minnesota, who sang protest songs, better known as Bob Dylan, sang protest songs like Blowing in the Wind, which wasn't particularly about the Vietnam War, but was one of those songs of the Vietnam era. Give Peace a Chance, so many of the others, which we will be featuring as part of this very special broadcast. The first big lie about the Vietnam War and about the Vietnam era that needs to be corrected is the one that says that America got into the war because America was an imperialist power. The best way to understand why that is a lie, why it's also a lie to say that the war was unconstitutional, is to understand that the Vietnam War is more properly understood as the Vietnam Battle. It was part of a much longer war, a war that went on for more than 40 years. It's a war that went on for 43 years before America finally won. It was called the Cold War, and it was a struggle against international communism, which was indeed, as President Reagan rightly pointed out, an evil empire. And that evil empire was bent on world domination. The United States was very eager to demobilize after World War II. Our troops came home, so many of them had been drafted, and we basically cut back, cut way back on our military, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves facing this challenge by the Soviet Union and its leader, Joe Stalin. Stalin actually had a great deal to say about the importance of the kind of challenge in which he was engaged. He saw that part of what the Soviet Union was doing by advancing its interests all around the world was probing, testing. And this is something that Stalin said to one of his Chinese colleagues, Zhou Enlai, who for years was number two man to Mao in communist China. Stalin wrote to him on August 20th, 1952, in the middle of the Korean War. He said, Americans are merchants. Germans conquered France in just 20 days. It's been already two years, and America has still not subdued little Korea. No, Americans don't know how to fight. After the Korean War in particular, they have lost the capability to wage a large-scale war. They are fighting little Korea, and already people are weeping in the USA. What will happen if they start a large-scale war? Then perhaps everyone there will weep. There was an assumption that the United States was a paper tiger, could not really defend its interests. And that, of course, was partially an assumption that was drawn because the United States had allowed Stalin and the communists to triumph absolutely in communist China. And a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, China, Mao, and Stalin, well, one was Russian, one was Chinese, and these were two rival world powers. Not originally. There was no question at all that originally the Maoists and the communists in China were Stalinist puppets. They were totally controlled by, funded by, supported by the Russian communists, and they beat the American proxy, run by uh, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, and forced the Americans to retreat to Taiwan. And there, they created a nationalist government that America has protected until the present day. But part of the results of the loss of China in 1949 and 1950 and the consolidation of Mao's rule Aside from the fact that with his great leap forward about 10 years later, he uh, caused the death of some 30 million Chinese. I mean, some of the most unbelievable suffering of the last century. Despite all of that suffering and despite the re-education camps and despite the self-criticism sessions and the tyranny of the Chinese communist regime, they weren't satisfied. 
with just taking control of the world's most populous nation. There was also a desire to extend the Chinese empire and to extend the sway and the reach of communism. And one of the first places that the Chinese communists, very much with Stalin's support and under Stalin's direction, probed first was against Korea. Right after they had come to power in Beijing, the North Koreans, the client state of the Chinese, invaded South Korea. Korea had been occupied, had been part of the Japanese Empire. When the Japanese retreated, it was partitioned, and half of the country was a power friendly to the U.S., run by a dictator named Syngman Rhee, but somebody who allowed at least some economic freedom and then eventually evolved into the democratic state of South Korea that we see today. But North Korea didn't accept that. The communists didn't accept that. They had a massive invasion. And then, to everyone's surprise, the United States, with the U.N. support, because the Russians decided not to veto it, they actually boycotted the U.N. session, foolishly, involving the Korean War. The United States came roaring back under General MacArthur, and we fought this long, horribly bloody war, which, by the right calculation, some people say the Korean War killed 38,000 Americans. Actually, the right number, if you look at the casualty figures, 56,000 Americans died in Korea. It was a horrendous and bloody conflict. And yet America fought that conflict because it was considered that if you allowed the Chinese and their Korean allies, their Korean proxies, to move forward in Korea, then the momentum of history, the message to the whole world would be very much as Stalin said, that America was not willing to fight, that America was not able to fight, that we basically would abandon the field and would allow the communists to take over anywhere. And, of course, the real prize was Europe. For more history shows, go to medvedhistorystore.com or become a medhead today at michaelmedved.com. You're listening to a special history broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, Three Big Lies About the Vietnam War. At this time, there was a very real chance of a communist takeover in France, communist takeover in Italy, in many of the countries in Europe that later became allied with the United States, and, of course, there was always the threat of the Russians with their enormous land armies, much bigger than ours, roaring forward to take over the rest of Germany, to take over Western Germany that we were protecting. So the message was very clear, and everyone in American politics came to understand it. The message was what was called containment, that the United States simply could not allow a monstrous tyranny under the command of Joseph Stalin to move forward and to take over other countries. But there was another front in this war with the communists, and that front was in Indochina. Now, in the same way that Japan had withdrawn from Korea, creating the instability at the end of World War II that led to the Korean War, that eventually came out as a stalemate, when Eisenhower was elected president, he came in, he threatened, and now is very clear from some of the declassified information, he threatened a potential nuclear strike in Korea if they didn't actually agree. And we also maintained a permanent troop presence in South Korea to prevent the Chinese and to prevent the North Koreans from attacking ever again. But there was another nation that also involved a communist insurgency, and it was again a communist insurgency directly controlled by Mao and by Stalin. And in fact, Ho Chi Minh, the leader of that insurgency in Indochina, was far from a good guy nationalist leader. He was someone who had met personally with Stalin and with Mao in Moscow in the winter of 1950. 
And now he was getting ready to, quote, liberate his country, take it over for the world communist empire way back in 1954. What would the United States do? Well, what the United States did and didn't do had fateful consequences that helped to expose one of those three big lies about the Vietnam War. Three big lies about the Vietnam War. This is the Michael Medved Show. And a very special broadcast with the music of the birds in the background. Every, uh, to everything, turn, turn, turn. Uh, the birds, a uh, somewhat nostalgic group for me because actually, little known fact, when they were an unknown band in California, they played at my high school senior prom. Yeah, they really did. And then they had a few big hits and they became a worldwide phenomenon, including that hit based on the book of Ecclesiastes, to everything turn, turn, turn. And then the birds were on their way down and then they played at my college senior prom too. They did. It's a little known fact. But to understand one of these three big lies about the Vietnam War, we have to go back far into history, even beyond my high school senior prom. In fact, we have to go back to about... 1000 BC. But don't worry, not for long. Because 1000 BC is when Vietnamese civilization began. The Vietnamese people emerged and began constructing their civilization some 3000 years ago. And then about 100 AD, about 100 years after the death of Christ, the Vietnamese were taken over by the Chinese. And they fought for almost a thousand years for their independence and brutal horrible struggles against Chinese domination. And finally, in 939 A.D., Vietnam became an independent nation. And they had emperors and they had a long tradition and a proud nationalism. And then in the 1500s, a terrible thing happened to Vietnam, which was the French arrived. And that's always a, a negative. But actually, in this case, there were French missionaries. There were French financial interests. There were French imperialists who began hitting Indochina, Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos, beginning in the 1500s and establishing French Indochina as an empire, establishing it beginning in 1857 and really solidifying that domination by 1890. The whole European continent was playing imperialist games at that time, and the French were very proud of their Indochinese empire. Now, what's interesting is they divided Vietnam into what they called the Protectorate of Tonkin, which was North Vietnam and the protectorate of Annam, which was South Vietnam. So even before the division in the Cold War between North and South Vietnam, that division existed as part of the French Empire. Of course, during World War II, France collapsed. It was dominated by the Germans. The French were in no position to resist the Japanese. The Japanese threw the French out. They took over Vietnam. After the Japanese lost the war, the United States was very eager to have the French come back. Why, you might ask? Well, we were concerned that all of France was going to fall to the communists. And we very much wanted to build up the old French empire, not only to beat the communists elsewhere in places like Asia, but in order to make France a stronger nation in the world stage, same reason we gave them a veto power in the UN, even though France was a shattered non-power really at that time, we wanted to build France up. And yet there were indigenous forces led by communists, led by Ho Chi Minh, 
who was personally acquainted and a collaborator with Mao, with Stalin, was a lifelong fanatical, unstoppable communist. Despite that fact, he claimed he was only fighting for nationalism and independence and he was fighting against the French. But the United States, under President Truman and much more decisively under President Eisenhower, was determined to stop the rebellion against French rule and to allow the French to reestablish their empire in Indochina and to stop the communists. And the warfare against the French proceeded as warfare against the French usually proceeds with great success for the other side. The French were unmatched. And in 1954, in Dien Bien Phu, in one of the great disasters in all of French military history, the French were surrounded, the Viet Minh, as they were called, the forces of the communists and the nationalists came down upon them, took prisoner more than 12,000 French troops, and the French were driven out of Indochina. And all of a sudden, that occurred, the French surrender, just before there was a Geneva conference to decide what to do about Indochina. The Geneva conference decided that elections would be held nationwide throughout all of Vietnam in 1956. But meanwhile, in 1954, while waiting for elections, there would be a division between the north of Vietnam, the old protectorate of Tonkin with some adjustments, and the south of Vietnam, the old protectorate of Annam with some adjustments, between a communist North Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh and a non-communist Western-friendly South Vietnam. But were the communists likely to respect that division? Well, you wouldn't think so if you know something about communism. America's response helped to shape the course of American history, not just Vietnamese history. We'll tell you about it coming up. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, Three Big Lies About the Vietnam War. This is The Michael Medved Show. And the first of those big lies is the one that says that the Vietnam War was a reflection of U.S. imperialism, some kind of U.S. desire to dominate the whole world, and that it was an unconstitutional war. You need to understand the background to how the U.S. made a commitment and to the fact that it was not just one party or one president or one cabinet or a few advisors. This was something that everyone in American political life agreed to be important. After the French were driven out of Indochina and Ho Chi Minh had the leading army on the ground, the Geneva Accords, which were agreed to by all of the world's powers and were basically validated by the United Nations, the Geneva Accords said, okay, we're going to divide this country up between the pro-communist North and the pro-Western South, and then by 1956, we'll have elections, and the country can be united. Well, there was one problem with those elections. And a lot of people have said, why didn't the U.S. just allow the elections to happen? And it's true, the U.S. blocked those elections. Why? Is that a reflection of U.S. imperialism, the fact that we didn't trust democracy? No, it's the fact that we didn't trust communism. Because there were two reasons that the communists would have definitely won the elections in 56. Reason number one was the North, under communist dominion, had a bigger population than the South, which was a pro-Western enclave in Vietnam. But reason number two is that in North Vietnam, under Ho Chi Minh, after he set up shop, there was absolutely no freedom of any kind, no free votes of any kind. In fact, according now to declassified information, we have Soviet files and other files, they murdered, summarily murdered, as soon as they took over, a minimum of 10,000 people, most people say over 100,000 people, just for the crime of opposing the communists. 
If you enjoy The Michael Medved Show, consider becoming a MedHead member today at michaelmedved.com. You get commercial-free audio, the radio program on demand 24-7, an archive of Michael's commentaries, call the week, and so much more. Go to michaelmedved.com, click on the MedHead banner, and subscribe today. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, Three Big Lies About the Vietnam War. In North Vietnam, under Ho Chi Minh, after he set up shop, there was absolutely no freedom of any kind, no free votes of any kind. In fact, according now to declassified information, we have Soviet files and other files, they murdered, summarily murdered, as soon as they took over, a minimum of 10,000 people, most people say over 100,000 people, just for the crime of opposing the communists. So if you have a larger part of the country in the North anyway, and that part of the country has no freedom at all, and they're going to produce it like virtually a 100% vote for the communists, obviously if you allow a nationwide election when they have allowed no freedom at all and no free elections and no free expression and no opposition in the North, then the election is a farce and it's a disaster. Which is why the United States and everyone in the United States, not just the Eisenhower administration, was determined not to allow that election to happen unless there was some progress in the North to guaranteeing normal democratic processes. Now, this was not just something that President Eisenhower had done. In fact, Eisenhower had been under a lot of pressure from some hawks in his own party and in the Democratic Party to actually send troops to help rescue the French. The United States paid 80% of the costs for the French to try to fight against the Viet Ninh, against the communists. That hadn't worked. Now we were faced with all kinds of new challenges. And it's fascinating to go back and to look at a speech that was given by a very dynamic young senator, a Democrat, in 1956. And this is what he said. That senator from Massachusetts said that Vietnam represents the cornerstone of the free world in Southeast Asia, the keystone to the arch, the finger in the dike. Burma, Thailand, India, Japan, the Philippines, and obviously Laos and Cambodia would be threatened if the red tide of communism overflowed into Vietnam. This is why Senator John F. Kennedy, future president, said that in 1956, when he was still a member of the U.S. Senate, America's stake in Vietnam was a proving ground for democracy in Asia, the alternative to communist dictatorship, if this democratic experience fails, Senator Kennedy said, if some one million refugees have fled the totalitarianism of the North only to find neither freedom nor security in the South, then weakness, not strength, will characterize the meaning of democracy in the minds of still more Asians. It is an experiment we cannot afford to permit to fail. Now, what John Kennedy was saying was absolutely true. After the North Vietnamese began their killing campaign, over one million people in the north moved to the south of Vietnam, voted with their feet, tried to flee the communist tyranny, and found refuge in the south. Now, the south wasn't a garden spot either. The dictator of the south, Diem, he wasn't fully a dictator. He was still consolidating his power. He threw out the old emperor, Bao Dai, who had been tainted with association with the Japanese, and he began to try to set up his authoritarian, not totalitarian, authoritarian pro-Western regime. And the Eisenhower administration was absolutely committed to defend it because it was very clearly in the U.S. interest to do so. As a matter of fact, the vice president of the United States, whose name was Nixon, said, I am convinced 
that unless the communists knew that their so-called wars of liberation would be resisted by military means if necessary, they would not stop until they had taken over Southeast Asia, just as they had all of Eastern Europe. And Eisenhower himself, in what later became one of the most famous, in fact, notorious images about America's involvement in Vietnam, said it was necessary to stop the fall of Indochina to communism because, quote, you have a row of dominoes set up. You knock over the first one, and what will happen to the last one is the certainty that it will go over very quickly. There was virtual unanimity from all segments of the American political class in the Eisenhower administration, in the Kennedy administration, in the Johnson administration, that Vietnam needed to be defended against communist aggression and subversion. In fact, Robert Kennedy, later an anti-war candidate, went to Saigon when he was attorney general for his brother, President John F. Kennedy. And he went to Saigon in 1962, and here's what he said. Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, said, we're going to win in Vietnam, and he said, we will remain here until we do win. This was bipartisan. It was virtually unanimous. And there was no need to, quote, trick people or to fool people or in some way to, uh, to try to alter the political balance because the political consensus was so strong. Stanley Carno, very much a liberal, has said, and I think very clearly and very well, in his history of Vietnam, that accordingly the United States didn't stumble into the Vietnam quagmire blindly, nor was it propelled toward the conflict by a cabal of warmongers of the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, or the CIA, in collaboration with Wall Street and corporate America. Legions of civilian and military bureaucrats went through a slow, cumbersome, often agonizing process as they studied data and drafted plans and options. We'll talk about those plans coming up. You're listening to The Michael Medved Show. You're listening to a special program on the three big lies about the Vietnam War. This is The Michael Medved Show. Why were we in Vietnam? Was it a reflection of American imperialism? That's one of the big lies about the Vietnam War. Stanley Carno, the leading liberal historian of that war, the author of Vietnam History, says the decisions to go to war reflected the view of most Americans that they could not shirk their responsibility as global custodian. We were fighting a battle to the death, a battle against our way of life, a battle against our liberties, against our freedom, against the whole concept of America, a battle with a very formidable, very implacable foe, world communism. And they were probing and testing us everywhere. And one of the places was Vietnam. And future presidents, Richard Nixon, John Kennedy, President Kennedy's brother, future anti-war candidate Bobby Kennedy, everyone agreed that Vietnam was crucial, that this was a place that the United States had to make a stand. Was that based upon natural resources, some desire to steal their oil? You know what? They did discover oil off the shores of Vietnam at the very middle of the Vietnam War. But we now know, because of all kinds of declassified information, the government had no idea the oil was there. And even if they had, 
At that time, when there was no OPEC, when oil was still available for two bucks a barrel from uh, the Middle East, there's no chance we would have gone to war for oil in Vietnam. That's a ridiculous assertion. The other ridiculous assertion, that the war was unconstitutional. Michael Lind, who is kind of a centrist-leaning liberal writer, wrote maybe the best single book on the Vietnam War, recent book. It's called Vietnam, the Necessary War. And he makes the point that the Vietnam War was not an undeclared war because the Southeast Asia Resolution, otherwise known as the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, was a legitimate conditional declaration of war. Nor was any senator or representative tricked into voting for it because everyone knew that the purpose of the resolution was to enable the president to increase U.S. military efforts to prevent the forcible incorporation of South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia into the communist bloc. How did they know that? How can he say that? Listen to the language of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. It was adopted unanimously by the House of Representatives in 1964, August 7th, and with only two dissenting votes in the U.S. Senate, 98 to 2. The Congress resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled that the Congress approves and supports the determination of the president as commander-in-chief to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. The United States regards as vital to its national interest and to world peace the maintenance of international peace and security in Southeast Asia. The United States is therefore prepared, as the president determines, to take all necessary steps, including the use of armed force to assist any member or protocol state of the Southeast Asia Collective Defense Treaty requesting assistance in defense of its freedom. Yes, there were false reports about the North Vietnamese attacking innocent American shipping. They were actually disrupting or attacking covert operations in which we were engaged. But Congress voted to authorize virtually unlimited war. The war was not unconstitutional, nor was it imperialistic. But there are other lies that need to be rebutted about the Vietnam War, upward and onward. <laughs> 